If you would turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. For those of you who are in, are visiting with us tonight, it is helpful for you to know that we have now for 25 weeks been engaged in a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Corinthians. And we find ourselves tonight, providentially, at the beginning of the fifth chapter. We are very much so committed to the expository preaching of the Word of God. We believe that a spiritual diet should be formed and shaped very much like your physical diet, that it should be well-rounded, that you should not always just go back to the same three favorite foods that you like to eat every day that you should force yourself to eat a nutritious diet, and that involves eating things that you ordinarily would not reach for, and that we should preach through the Bible in the way that the Bible is written to us. In other words, you would not be getting a very good digest of the Scriptures if you woke up in the morning and opened up to a random place and read a couple of verses and then flipped to another random place and read a couple of verses and closed your Bible and just came back the next day and did that. No, when you... Read the Bible, you begin at chapter 1, verse 1, and you read a couple of chapters, and then you put your bookmark there, and you close it, and you come back, and you pick up where you left off. That's what you do if you want to understand what the Bible is saying to you, and we believe that that's how the Bible should be preached. And so we're not bound to those expositions as if we can never venture from them. Obviously we do, especially when the need arises. But the meat and potatoes of our pulpit ministry here is the expositional preaching of God's Word. And where we find ourselves this week, providentially, is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. This practice is also extremely beneficial for the preacher because it forces me to go to texts that I ordinarily would not go to. And let me say to you, this is not a text that ordinarily, uh, if I was to to sit and ponder, what what shall I preach this Lord's Day? Um, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you is not one that most naturally comes to mind, but it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you is just as much inspired and part of the word of God as for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And if we're going to be a faithful church, and if this is going to be a faithful pulpit, then we are duty bound to preach systematically from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. So, I'm going to preach a message to you this evening entitled, A Bad Kind of Glory. A Bad Kind of Glory. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, these are the words of God. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us. 
Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There is much debate concerning the scriptural identity of the Lord's church. What requirements must a church meet in order to be called a church in the biblical sense of the word? Do we have scriptural authority to just get together and host a little Bible study and call it a church? When we consider the example that is set forth in the New Testament, it is evident to us that there are certain criteria that any group must meet in order to truly claim the title church. And the identity of a true church can easily be boiled down to three irreducible characteristics. To remove any one of these is to cease from being a church. Anything less than this results in a church that is one in name only. This definition was ironed out most specifically and explicitly at the time of the Protestant Reformation. And they boiled it down to three cardinal marks of a true church. What are they? Well, number one, the preaching of the gospel. The true gospel of Jesus Christ must characterize the teaching and preaching of a true church. Number two, the observance of the ordinances or the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I would go a step further and say the correct observance of those ordinances. And thirdly, is the practice of church discipline. Now, if these are indeed indispensable aspects of any true church, then we must admit that many groups calling themselves churches are no churches at all. Undoubtedly, though, the most neglected of these three attributes is the practice of church discipline. Church discipline is so unpracticed that many Christians don't even know what it looks like. If I were to ask many of you in this room, what is the gospel? I would probably get a a number of wonderful answers. If I were to ask, uh, could you please tell me how baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be observed? I would get wonderful answers. But perhaps if I asked, could you tell me what church discipline is, what its purpose is, and what it looks like, and how it should be conducted, there might be some confusion about that area. And that is due to the fact that it is very, very neglected in our day and age. But may I remind you that church discipline is not the innovation of some cold and domineering pastor who desires to have a despotic control over the congregation. Church discipline is not the the barriers that uh, keep a church nice and cultic. Church discipline was given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ himself as he, during his earthly ministry, taught his church how to faithfully and lovingly practice church discipline. The church should be a glorious place and there should be much glorying that proceeds from our worship. But when we are glorying in the face of sin and immorality because of an absence of church discipline, that is a very bad kind of glory. Sin must not be celebrated. Sin must be confronted. Sin must not be accepted. It must be assaulted. Sin must not be tolerated, it must be triumphed. Sin must not be put to practice, it must be put to death. And sin must not remain in the church, it must be removed from the church. That the church may be purified, 
that church members might be sanctified, that God might be glorified. Remember, brothers and sisters, this is God's church. It is not our church. It is not your church. It is not my church. And therefore, we have no authority to steward the church in any way apart from that which our Lord has told us to do so. The church must be a place that is different from the world or else it is not a church. And those who follow headlong after the world and seek to bring the world into the church need to be confronted. And if there is no repentance, need to be removed. Sadly, this was not being practiced at the church in Corinth. Instead of disciplining unrepentant sin, they prided themselves in how tolerating and accepting they were of sin. They boasted that that sin was welcomed at their church. And in their arrogance, they were destroying themselves all the while thinking they were spiritual. So Paul writes to them not only to address the sin that is present in the church, but also their anti-Christian attitude towards that sin. There's a number of things I want you to see in the text before us, verses 1 through 8. The first is this. I want you to see the reproach. The reproach. Paul begins by saying, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. Now it is not just that this sin leaked out and somehow Paul was able to find out about it through a series of uh, secret text messages. This was not something that was confessed at a confessional and uh, someone had a loose lip and let, let, the bill, let the beans spill. No, it was reported commonly. It was common knowledge. Everyone knew about it. Everyone in the church knew about it. Everyone in the community knew about it. This is not referring to private and secret sin that is hidden and concealed. This is referring to a sin that is very open and very public, so much so that this sin had even given the church a reputation in the city. If you were to live in Corinth in the first century, and you were to be out at the tavern or be out at the store, and you were to talk about the churches in the area, and you were to say, well, what about First Baptist Church of Corinth? And someone would say, well, don't you know, that's that church that has all the fornicators in it. (laughs) Because it was reported commonly. And this is something very important for us to understand, brothers and sisters. When Christians don't live up to their professed values, the unbelieving world takes note of that, even if they staunchly agree with said, disagree with said values. What is the world's number one criticism of the church? Why do people not want to go to church? Because they will say, well, the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. And I I always say, well, you're exactly right. We have room for one more, so I'll see you at five (laughs) o'clock. But the truth of the matter is, when we fail to live a life that is consistent with the gospel that we say we believe in, all we do is fuel that fire and help them to be right in their accusation. When Christians sin and the church does nothing about it, we confirm that critique and we ruin our testimony and we make ourselves a reproach upon the gospel itself. 
Now, the type of sin in the church of Corinth is defined as fornication. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you. And Paul, later in this epistle, will spend a great deal of time speaking about fornication. So I'm not going to diverge into it too greatly. But I do want you to understand that fornication comes from the Greek word porneia, and it simply is a broad term that that refers to all forms of sexual sins. Fornication includes any form of sexual expression that is not confined within the bounds of a marriage covenant between one man and one woman. That's what fornication is. And sexual sins, as we will find out later in this epistle, are an especially egregious and filthy category of transgressions against the Word of God for a Christian to commit because it is not a sin that is without the body. It is a sin that is within the body. And if you are a Christian, what else is in your body? The indwelling Holy Spirit. And so when you engage in a sexual sin, you are dragging the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, into that filth with you. And as sexual sins have become more prevalent, they have also become more accepted. Sexual sin has lost its shame. That's true both in the culture and in the world. It has lost its stigma. Things you could once only see if you went down to a store and bought a magazine are now broadcasted on primetime television. Things that used to be illegal to display to minors are now accessible for their viewing on all forms of social media. But again, this is just as much true in the church as it is in society. Things that are commonplace amongst Christians today would have once been considered disgusting even by unbelievers. There are things that we wear to church that lost people would have considered immodest 50 years ago. The practice of recreational dating and the immorality that often follows, it's not just a problem in the world. The things we watch, the things we engage in, the way we present our bodies are oftentimes no different than that of unbelievers. And that the problem of our response, which I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the problem of our response is also an issue in today's day and age because any time a Christian wants to speak out on any one of these issues, other Christians will be the first to shout back and call him a legalist. The problem is not just that these sins are present in the church, it is that we do not even see them as sins. And if we do, we don't really see them as big deals. After all, everybody does it. Everyone watches it. Everyone's familiar with it. And some churches even go so far as instead of warring against them, they openly promote them and celebrate them. Well, this exact form of worldliness was commonplace in the Corinthian church. It is reported commonly that there is fornication. But notice how he qualifies. He says this. This is a very interesting statement in verse 1. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. See, the sin in Corinth was so grotesque so abominable, so filthy, so ungodly, that even the unbelieving Gentiles knew it was wrong. Even the unbelieving Gentiles, if they were to see someone committing this sin, would have been repulsed. Now we ought to thank God that by common grace, 
There are still sins that even lost people know are wrong. But sadly, as our society becomes darker and darker, the list of such sins becomes shorter and shorter. Churches that do not practice faithful church discipline are bound to follow the lusts of the world. The the culture will go one way and the church will either stay put where it should be on the foundation of God's word or they will be forced to follow after it. And I, for one, do not believe and Paul will later say in, in this same chapter that we are not to be separatists in the sense that we close off our lives, sell all that we have, and become monks in a monastery somewhere. That's not the call of God upon our life. I, I think Luther said it really well when, when Luther said that, that, that for the Christian, it is okay to have the birds flying over your, your head. There's nothing you can do about it. Just do not let them make a nest in your hair. And so he says, we, 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 we're not supposed to cut off all sinners from our life, else we would have to go out of the world. But no, what what he's saying is that sin will be a reality in our lives. We will have to deal with it. We will have to encounter it. And we as a church need to be very clear as to what our position on sin is. What our attitude towards it will be. Will we tolerate it? Will we accept it? Will we encourage it? Will we invite it? Will we welcome it? Or will we lovingly have nothing to do with it? Now, what is the specific sin? We know it's fornication. What is this fornication that is so gross that even the lost people rebuke it? Verse 1, that one should have his father's wife. Now, there are obviously some details here that we don't have, okay, but what we do know is this. okay? There was a member of the Corinthian church whose father had remarried. So, There's a member of the church that has a stepmother. And that individual was engaged in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Now his stepmother is obviously not a member of the church because she's not addressed at all in this passage. Okay, so we don't know where she is. We don't really know where the father is. The only thing we know about is this man that's in the church. But not only is this man engaged in the sin of incest... He commits this sin openly in front of the church and in front of the world. Everyone knows what's going on. And yet Sunday after Sunday, he comes down to church and he sits on the pew and smiles as if everything was all right. That's what's going on in Corinth. This is the reproach in the church. But this is not the end of the problem. It is only the beginning. The truly reprehensible sin in the Corinthian church takes place in verse number 2. So we've seen the the reproach, but I want you to see, secondly, the response in verse 2. Paul says, in light of this sin, in light of this sin that you see happening, you know what's going on, he says, and ye are puffed up. We know what that means. You've been here for this study in 1 Corinthians. Proud. Arrogant. Happy about it. Patting yourself on the back. You're puffed up. You're puffed up and have not rather mourned. We see here that Paul is not predominantly concerned with the individual in the incestuous relationship. 
He doesn't, he doesn't even address the guy directly in the entire chapter, even though he is a member of the church. No, he addresses the body as a whole. He says the, the, the issue is not just what this guy's doing, though it's, it's wicked, it's awful. The issue is that you are puffed up about it. What troubles Paul even more is the arrogance and the moral laxity of the Corinthians. And the real shocker is not that the sin is being committed, but that the Corinthians are responding in such an anti-Christian and unbiblical manner. Remember that Paul learned of these events in a letter written to him that he mentioned all the way back in chapter 1. Chapter 1 and verse 11, Paul says that he received a letter from Chloe's household. Now, I want you to imagine the hypothetical conversation that would take place as this sin is reported to Paul. Here's Paul reading this letter, receiving it. And the Corinthians say, Paul, you've got to help us. There's a man in the church living incestuously with his stepmother. And Paul would say, well, that's terrible. Well, what, well, what is the church doing about it? Have you confronted him? Have, have, you, have you said, you need to repent of this sin? You need to stop this immediately? Uh, we cannot have a member of this church living openly in such a sin with no remorse and no repentance and no struggle against it? And then they would say, no, Paul. Actually, in fact, we've done nothing. Well, we embrace it. We're actually kind of proud that, that he can be welcomed and invited to our church. And for Paul, learning of the Corinthians' response is far worse than learning of the sin itself. And we might ask, why would the church be puffed up in pride over a sin that was hated even by unbelievers? When Paul says, ye are puffed up, I don't believe that, that they are puffed up because the sin is happening. They're not proud that, that someone is engaged in that relationship. In fact, if you press them, they might even admit that, yes, we know that this is not ideal. They're not proud because the sin is occurring. They're proud because of the way they have accepted it and embraced it and encouraged it. They're proud because they have convinced themselves that they are more loving than God. And churches just like this are found today in nearly every town, every city, all across America. I don't care what you're into. You can probably find a church that will say Christian on the sign that will be totally fine with whatever kind of immorality you want to live in. Come as you are, leave as you came. Half of that is true. Half of that is not. Don't worry about your sins being confronted. At our church, we don't preach against sin. Well, we're not like those judgmental Christians down the road who will exhort you to repentance and encourage you in holiness and preach that Jesus came to sanctify a people and purify a people and cleanse a people. See, Joel Osteen did not make $100 million off the ministry from preaching against wickedness, I'll tell you that. Churches will refer to themselves as an affirming church. They, they won't confront your sin. They'll affirm your sin. But brothers and sisters, any church that affirms sin, especially one as heinous as an incestuous relationship with your stepmother, is no church of Christ, but a synagogue of Satan. Now notice what I'm not saying. I am not saying that we should 
hate people involved in those types of sins, that we should remove them from amongst us so that we can maintain a hypocritical testimony before the world. It is not for our sakes only that we are to remove such from the church. It is first and foremost for the glory and honor of Christ because the church is His bride. Instead of being proud, they should have been broken. should have been broken. They should have mourned. They should have lamented this sin and begged God to do whatever necessary to remove it from them that it no longer be named among them. See, understand, sin will happen and it will happen in a church. Sexual sin will happen in a church. But when it does... What will our response be? What will our response be? When a church, see, when a church member comes to me seeking counsel, and it happens because they have committed some sin, and they are broken about it, and they are tearful about it, and they are shamed, and they are repentant, I don't worry about that person. Why don't I worry about that person? Because it is evident that God is dealing with their heart. But when sin is observed in a church member, and it seems as if they are oblivious to it, or they acknowledge it, but they don't recognize it as sin, and they are confronted, and they are shown what the scriptures say about that particular act or deed, And yet they persist in that sin with no remorse and no repentance. I fear for such a person. I fear. Because by that testimony, they are are confessing that they truly do not believe what the Bible says about sin. They, they, They truly have no concern over the holiness that should characterize a believer. Have you ever committed a sin that truly caused you to mourn? Perhaps you thought you were really making progress in the Christian life. You've been struggling and you get on track and you think you're heading in the right direction and then all of a sudden, almost as if it were out of nowhere, you say something or you think something or you do something that just makes you mourn, just breaks your heart. And then you sit there and you think, how could I do this? Perhaps it's something that you told yourself, I'm done doing that. I'll never do that again. And then you do. Were you puffed up? Or did it cause you to mourn? Mourning over sin is a very healthy experience to have. Because if you walk around always thinking that you're a cut above, never experiencing sorrow over your sins, then I can assure you, you have not climbed the first rung of biblical Christianity. Augustus Toplady, the Anglican hymn writer, wrote many of the hymns that we love to sing, lived a long life, and on his deathbed, he was asked, you have lived this long life, you've been a Christian for all these decades, Uh, tell me what you have learned, what are the secrets to the Christian life? And he said, 
But as I come to think about it, I don't believe I've ever done one pure thing or thought one pure thought in my entire life. Was he recanting the faith? Was he apostatizing? No, he was actually very, very mature because he was able to see himself for what he was. The doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Calvinistic Methodist in Wales in the 60s, towards the end of his life, he was unable to get out of the house. So he was staying at home and Friends would come and visit him and they knew that his time was coming to an end and he was known to say and repeat to himself over and over again, I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. Mourning over sin. So Paul writes to the church to inform them that their sin should have not puffed them up, but it should have made them mourn and their mourning should have led to the removal of that unrepentant offender. And your personal mourning should lead to the removal of that sin from your life. You should be determined to get it out, to have nothing to do with it. Now that would have been the proper response, but because they didn't do that, we now have in verses 3 to 5 the recourse. The recourse. Now these verses are one sentence, and they, they must be understood together. Uh, verses 3 to 5 are a very Pauline way of writing with all kinds of prepositional phrases and run-ons and all that fun stuff that makes Greek class very frustrating. But he says, For I verily, as absent in the body, but present in the spirit, have judged already. Now, physically, Paul is in Ephesus at this time, at the time he's writing this book, but he is saying that spiritually, I am right there with you guys. I'm in the midst of this church. He is with them in thought, he is with them in heart, but furthermore, when this letter, which we now know is 1 Corinthians, when, when Paul delivered it, it didn't say 1 Corinthians at the top, and it didn't have chapter and verse divisions in it either, but we now know it as 1 Corinthians. When this letter was read to the church... Paul would be present with them spiritually because Paul wrote this letter by the inspiration of God. This is the word of Paul, yes, but it is first and foremost the word of God. So he says, I am present with you in spirit, spiritually and in the Holy Spirit. And I have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. Notice that Paul is contrasting their abysmal response with the correct response. He's saying, if I were there, this is what I would have done, and this is what you should now go and do. Paul was not at all shy about judging. (laughs) Paul was not afraid of the world calling him judgmental. If Paul were to say something like this today, you know, I'm not even there, and I've already judged the guy, we would say, well, wait a minute, Paul, haven't you read Matthew 7, 1? Don't you know the Bible says, judge not, lest you be judged? But as Vody Bauckham likes to say, most Christians today only care about keeping the 11th commandment, thou shalt be nice, and they've thrown out the other 10. Judge not lest ye be judged is an admonition for us not to judge hypocritically. We're to take the, the, the speck out of our own eye before we try to remove it from our brothers. And so yes, I would agree, uh, no one who is also in an incestuous relationship has any place to condemn this man in that church for being in one himself. 
But in that same text, our Lord Jesus tells us, judge righteous judgments. And so Paul says, I've judged already. When Paul received word about this church member living in incest, he did not say, well, we can't know his heart. No, Paul judged. And here was his judgment. Verse 4. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, so by virtue of Christ's sovereign power as head of the church, on account of the authority of the Lord's church, to whom God has given the keys of the kingdom, and by the apostolic authority of Paul. In other words, this judgment was not up for debate. Uh, This judgment is not a suggestion. This judgment is a divine command. To follow this judgment is to obey God. To not follow this judgment is to blaspheme Christ, His church, and His apostles. What does he say? Verse 5. To deliver such an one unto Satan. This is the same admonition as we find in verse 2. When he says, remove him from among you. On account of this unrepentant sin, being removed, it's the same thing as being delivered unto Satan. Now verse 5 contains a number of truths for us to unpack. And again, this this is not just our church's specific position on how we are going to handle such things. This is what the Bible says all churches are to do and follow. A number of truths for us to unpack in verse 5. Number one, church discipline necessitates a formal church membership. You, you, you cannot remove someone from something which they do not belong. And we noted earlier that we live in a day and age when church discipline is widely neglected. And one of the reasons for this is that church membership itself is widely neglected. Many churches do not practice any type of formal accountability at all. Many churches that do practice such accountability treat it as a very light and trivial thing, and so it loses all of its gravity and all of its significance. And if we're going to first recover church membership, we must recover, or if we're going to recover church discipline, we must first recover church membership. A church with no members is no church. We need to repent of this allergy that we have towards commitment. We need to realize what a privilege it is to not only be in the body of Christ spiritually, but also to be a member of the local invisible church. Outside of the marriage covenant, there is no commitment more sacred. And we must see it as a vital aspect of our spirituality. The number of people that think they can live the Christian life apart from the fellowship of a local, visible body of believers, is astounding to me. No one who has ever so much as cracked open a New Testament could possibly come away with such a conclusion. Do you realize that all of the New Testament, with the exception of the Gospels and a couple of general epistles, are written to specific local churches? You know, I'm delighted when I hear from visitors, when they come in, they say, we've been looking for a church. We've been, we've been looking for a church. That's a wonderful thing to hear. And we must see it. We must see church discipline. 
not just in this negative context. When we hear the word discipline, we immediately think punishment. We immediately think bad. Immediately think negative. Discipline, understand, is a very good thing. And we have veterans here. And they will tell you that if not for the discipline that was instilled in them when they served, they would have been a very poor soldier. They needed to be disciplined. And you need to be disciplined if you are going to be an effective servant of Jesus Christ. Discipline is not a bad thing. It is a very good thing. It is a good thing for you to not be off on your own, trying to live the Christian life on solo. So number one, we see that church discipline necessitates this formal accountability. There is a mutual commitment that we must make to one another, that we are going to love one another and help one another and aid one another. And when we see one another falling into sin, we are going to lovingly seek to restore our brother because we want to see them serve Christ. Secondly, the text before us teaches us that to be removed from the church is to be delivered unto Satan. I don't believe Paul could have said it any more seriously than that. The church is the manifestation of God's kingdom on earth. The church is a place where the means of God's grace are administered. The church is a place where believers in Christ commune with one another. And the church is that blessed institution that Christ said would triumph over the gates of hell. So therefore, to be removed from the church is to be cut off from the means of grace and Christian fellowship. To be removed from the church is to be vulnerable, to be susceptible to all of Satan's attacks. How how does the Lord Jesus liken us as, as his people? He likens us to sheep. And sheep have a good chance of survival when they stay together in a large flock. And when they have a shepherd who protects them. But when a sheep wanders off into the wilderness by itself, it becomes very vulnerable to all sorts of predators, to all sorts of danger. Thirdly, from verse 5, we see also that the purpose of this deliverance to Satan and the purpose of church discipline, notice what he says, we deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. The ultimate goal of church discipline is salvation. That is the ultimate goal. Church discipline is about the defense of God's holiness and the purity of Christ's church. Yes, it is. But it is also about the restoration of the one being disciplined. One of the reasons why church discipline is not practiced is because of the foolish idea that it is unloving. But think about this for a moment. Church discipline being unloving is is as far from the truth as you could possibly get. How much do you have to hate someone to see them living in a way that will lead to their own condemnation and their own eternal destruction and coddle them and tell them that everything is okay? If you had a patient that came into the doctor's office complaining of some pain they were experiencing, the doctor ran some tests and found out that they have Cancer eating their body alive and they will not make it six months apart from treatment. How miserable of a doctor. How much would that doctor have to hate that patient to go into that room and say, everything's fine. You're free to go. 
Brothers and sisters, when a church member persists in unrepentant sin, the most loving thing that the church can do is discipline. You must confront them. We must stand as a witness against them. We do not want to allow them to have any false sense of assurance that everything is okay. We practice church discipline so that those who should not be called Christians are not called Christians. And to keep those who have no reason of thinking that they are Christian from thinking that they are Christians. If you prayed a prayer when when you were eight years old and you walked an aisle at vacation Bible school and repeated the words of a preacher, but then you have gone on to live two and a half decades characterized in sin and idolatry and ungodliness and wickedness, you have no reason to think you're a Christian. That is not judgmental to say. Uh, That is not exclusive to say. That is loving to say. The world tells us that this is harsh, that this is inconsiderate, but the reality is this is compassion. I fear that many will close their eyes in death and be in utter shock to find themselves in hell because they were told by a church that their sins were no big deal. That holiness really doesn't matter. May we have, may we have a testimony that Jesus Christ came not to confirm our sin, but to save us from our sins, to rescue us from our sins. And may we never have the blood on our hands of those who we should have warned. This restoration oftentimes involves the destruction of the flesh. Sometimes the best thing that a sinner can do is to hit rock bottom and to come to an end of himself. To be put out of the church and to be forced to sit and ponder the wretchedness of sin all alone. To become miserable that peradventure in that misery they may find comfort in Christ. Uh, I have said this a number of times, going out and witnessing and sharing the gospel in the public square. And I, I am, am a staunch believer that salvation is of the Lord. The Lord saves His people when He wills and how He wills. But the hardest group to witness to are rich white people. Because rich white people have everything. They have the house, they have the car, they have the 401k, they have the retirement plan, their kids are are, are off at college. They don't need a message of a Savior. They're living it up. And one of the most healthy things that can happen to us many times is to crash to rock bottom and to be stripped of all of those fake comforts. I remember listening to Pastor David Dickerson pray as he would often pray at the end of a service and he would say, Lord, for that one who is nearest hell, may their food be bitter, may their bed give them no rest, and may all their days be filled with trouble until they find refuge in Christ. It's a loving prayer. And this judgment of Paul's, this apostolic recourse, this is the decree of God. And the church is to execute public discipline to remove such unrepentant sinners that persist in their sin for the glory and honor of God and for the salvation of that sinner. And we're not to be pragmatic about this. We don't do this 
because it works or because it doesn't work. We do this because this is what God has commanded us to do. I have had the, it is an honor, but it is, it is a sad honor to sit through a church disciplinary hearing as a member of a church because a fellow member had fallen into a, a sinful, sinful pattern and though they were confronted and though they were ministered to, they persist on in it. And I sat as my pastors reported all of the happenings to the church. And I watched those three grown men weep over the soul of that dear young lady. And we sat there as a church and begged God to intervene in her life and to save her and to administer His grace to her and to make her aware of her sin. Well, she never did return to the church. But she did repent of those sins. And she did restore the estranged relationship that her sins had caused between her and her family. And the most loving thing we could have done is exactly what we did. It did not make us feel good. It wasn't, it wasn't as something we celebrated, something we looked forward to. We prayed that we'd never have to do it again, but it was our duty to do such a thing if we truly loved her. And so, the last thing I want you to see from this text is the refinement. In verses 6 through 8, the refinement. Paul says, in verse 6, Your glorying is not good. That's where our title comes from tonight. They had a bad kind of glory. The Corinthians were engaged in the wrong kind of glory. And Paul will say, Know he not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Paul is using an Old Testament example to teach a spiritual reality. This is a splendid example of preaching the Old Testament Christocentrically. I know some of you seminary students are writing papers on that topic. Here's a good example for you. Paul is preaching the Old Testament very Christocentrically. Leaven in this passage is a picture, a, a symbol of sin. See, when you make a loaf of bread, it does not take much yeast for the loaf to rise. One or two very small teaspoons will affect an entire loaf of bread. And what is true physically is true spiritually. When unrepentant sin is tolerated in the church... It will spread like yeast through a lump of dough. It will spread like cancer through the body. Because the nature of evil is to diffuse itself and consume everything around it. The progression of sin never ends because sin is never satisfied. And anyone who remembers their life before they were converted by the grace of God should be able to amen such a statement. Your sin will never be satisfied. Sin, all sin is gateway sin. All sin leads to more sin. And, and sin will, as the preacher says, sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you longer than you intended to stay. And it will cost you more than you were willing to pay. If we tolerate fornication today, what will we tolerate tomorrow? If we tolerate a few white lies today, what kind of Gossip and slander and railing and accusation will we tolerate tomorrow. So what must we do? 
Where must we draw the line? We must draw the line where the Bible draws the line. Paul goes on and says, Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump. We draw the line where the Bible draws the line. Instead of embracing sin, we must purge it out from our midst. We must remove those who would corrupt the body and infect the church with sin. Now, I know this is hard for us to understand, especially in the culture that we live in, but removal means removal. There's no way around that word. It doesn't mean cutting back a little bit. It doesn't mean purging it out on Sunday, but not doing anything about it through the rest of the week. Church discipline will only be effective when it is practiced with consistency. And we will see more about this as we exposit the remainder of this chapter. But notice, Paul says, purge it out. Why? So that we can be a new lump. Sin has no place in the church because the church is a body of redeemed individuals. It is antithetical to the identity of who we are in Christ. You are never more unlike Christ than when you are engaging in sin. We purge out the leaven. Notice verse 7. Purge out therefore the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are unleavened. As ye are unleavened. Do you realize that we are imperfect people in a perfect body? That's what the church is. Because Christ will make the church pure and perfect and undefiled, without spot, without blemish, without any such thing. Christ has died to make us holy. He has died to separate us from the filth of this world. None of us are perfect now. But if you are Christ's, you will be. Think about that the next time you are tempted with sin. You will live on this, this earth for 50, 60, 70 years And you will spend, if you are Christ, you will spend an eternity sinlessly glorified with Christ. That will make your sinning in this life very deranged and silly. R.C. Sproul said, not only is sin wrong, it is just downright stupid. Watch as Paul climaxes this text at the end of verse 7. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Drawing the imagery from the Old Testament Passover, when the the Jews would celebrate the Passover, they would remove all the leaven from their home. They would purge it out, and the Paschal Lamb would be sacrificed on behalf of all Israel as a protection from the wrath of God, but also as a reminder that they were a new people. Paul is here saying that Christ is our Passover. He is the one who has shed his blood once and for all as an atonement for sin, as the satisfaction of God's wrath. And by his death, he has made us a new people. He has cleansed us in his blood. So how do we celebrate the Passover today? Well, not once a year with a feast. Not as the Jews did by purging out physical leaven, but by purging out spiritual leaven from our hearts and lives. How do we celebrate Christ's death for us? By living holy lives. We celebrate Christ by being who he has died to make us be. May we conclude this text as Paul concludes it with verse 8. He says, therefore, referring to Christ as our Passover, therefore, 
Let us keep the feast. Let us celebrate Christ as our Passover. Not with old leaven. Neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness. We don't celebrate the Passover with physical leaven. We don't celebrate the Passover with the spiritual leaven of sin. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Sincerity and truth speak of authentic, personal piety that springs from the heart and affects the totality of the believer. That is how we celebrate Christ. That is how we build a church. And that is truly glorious to God above. By purging out sin, by refining the body so that we might be in reality what Christ has died to make us be. Brothers and sisters, if you belong to Christ... You cannot go on living in the sins that he has died to save you from. His grace will change you. And it will progressively change you until one day you are fully changed. Glorified even as he is. Let me end with a word of encouragement. And I I do appreciate your entreating me this long. I know that we have gone long tonight, but I'm endeavoring to actually finish this book before our Lord returns. (laughs) But let me end with a word of encouragement to our hearts. I know that the talk of church discipline and the talk of removal can be a scary thing. And it can make us feel uneasy. Primarily because it's very rarely practiced. Uh, most churches, number one, they're, they're, so, they're so large that the members don't even have any kind of interpersonal relationship with each other. Pastors don't even know their congregations. And you cannot pastor someone you don't know. And most churches, you're able to hide whatever it is you need to hide. You don't, you're not involved in a relationship where, where you actually get to know one another. And of, of course, we have endeavored to not be that here. And perhaps you're sitting there and you're thinking, oh no, I've committed sin. I'm a sinner. They're going to find out and they're going to kick me out of here. Am I going to be removed? If, if, if I confess a sin, are they going to throw me out? Dear friend, Paul was not writing to the church so that there would be no sin at all. If you join a church, you are signing up to be sinned against. Because even a a redeemed body is still, at the end of the day, a group of sinners. Redeemed sinners. Saved sinners, but sinners. He was not writing so that there would be no sin at all. He was writing... Because he knows that there will be sin. And God's people need to know how to deal with sin. And if you recognize yourself as a sinner, and God has given you the gift of repentance, and you have a desire to be holy and to quit your sinning, then take comfort in knowing that God is dealing with you. That doesn't make you fit for removal. That makes you fit for membership. If you, are, if, you realize you're, if you don't realize you're a sinner, you're not fit for membership in the Lord's church. But if you realize, yes, I'm a sinner, but Christ is my Savior, welcome to the body. Welcome to the body. Church discipline, brothers and sisters, is for one who does not have that desire, but yet somehow has been able to successfully make his way into covenant with the church. 
They commit sins. They know that they're sins. They don't care that they're sins. They remain in those sins. Now, if that is you, you have a problem. If that is you, I fear for you. And unless you repent, the discipline that you may face from a church is only a light foretaste of the eternal punishment that you will suffer from the hands of a holy God. And if you find yourself in such a condition, I can only urge you to repent of your sins and flee to Christ. Don't let church discipline be something that dismays you. Let it be something that encourages you. Let it be something that encourages you because you have brothers and sisters that are sitting in this room that love you greatly and that desire to see you grow in holiness and that want to serve Christ with you. And and moreover, you have a God in heaven that has sent His Son to shed His blood for you as the Paschal Lamb to cleanse you and to sanctify you and to change you and to make you fit for His presence. That is how much God loves you. That He's not satisfied with come as you are, leave as you came. No, come as you are, but my grace will change you. That's the call of the gospel. Receive Christ as your Passover. Slain for you that you might be holy and unleavened even as He is. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us tonight. We ask that you would drive home the importance of practical holiness that you would change us and sanctify us and cleanse us, and that you would make us able to be loving towards our brothers and sisters, that we would encourage one another in their service of Christ. Father, lift us up tonight that Christ might be glorified and that we might be encouraged. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.